But we're going to get right into the word of the Lord again. In 2 John verse 7, we don't like preaching on these verses of scripture. A lot of times we don't think that it's very, that very necessary. But it says, for many deceivers are into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and the spirit of Antichrist. Now I want to talk to you today on the subject of the person of the incarnate Son of God. I want to preach a little bit of doctrine today. Our Lord Jesus Christ is a unique person. He's unique in the sense that he's one of a kind. Matter of fact, John 3, 16 said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And the word only begotten means the only one of his kind. He is known as the God-man. He is known as the son of God and he's known as the son of man at the exact same time. He was known and described as the eternal word in scripture, the second person of the triune Godhead, yet with robed in humanity. How could he be God and still yet be man at the same time? as him being the revelation of the Godhead, him being called the Word in John 1 and 1, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He therefore was eternally destined to become incarnate. And the word incarnate, remember, means to give an actual form to. Did you know it was his mission, it was Jesus' mission as the Word, as the Word, the expression of God to manifest and display God in human form. The, this is why that Jesus Christ came is to give you a revelation and, of who God is and to make God known to you. Matter of fact, the apostle John stated it this way in John 1 and 18, no man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten son, the only one of his kind, which is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. It is Jesus that is out to reveal or to make God known. He's the revelator of God the father. And can I tell you, the only way that you and I can come to know God is through the person of Jesus Christ. He is the way, he's the truth, he's the life, and no man cometh unto the Father except through him. Jesus came to do more than just make him known, but to actually give you a clear understanding of who God is. He came to give, he came to give you a form of God, an image of God, a picture of God. He was the very example and he is the very life of God. During his ministry, the Lord Jesus made the same affirmation concerning his person in response to his disciple Philip's request in John 14 and 8 when Philip asked, Lord, show us the Father and that'll be good enough for us. It'll suffice us. And, and Jesus responded with a note of sadness in his heart by saying this in John 14 and 9. Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been with you all of this long, long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father, how can you say, show us the Father? Philip's problem, despite his association with Jesus as a disciple from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry was that Jesus looked like any other person. Isn't that what Isaiah said? There'd be no form or comeliness in him that we should desire him. He's gonna look like just a normal man. He's not gonna have a, a glow upon his countenance. He's not gonna you know, have all of these different accolades upon him. He's just gonna look like a common Joe, a common guy. To Philip, he looked at him as nothing more than one of the prophets of the Old Testament who was divinely empowered to perform miracles. But yet Philip also, in his own unique way, in his own uh, mixed up way, recognized Jesus as the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. We know that by what he told Nathaniel in John chapter one, verse 45. He said, Philip findeth Nathaniel, Nathaniel, and saith unto him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, he never called him the son of God. He called him the son of Joseph. And here he is a little bit twisted, not fully understanding who this, who this character is by the name of Jesus Christ. And even though he saw him as an Old Testament Messiah, yet he did not fully understand that Jesus 
is the God-man, the union of deity and humanity in one person. He could not understand that. The Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD provided a, a fairly lengthy and involved statement of the doctrine of the person of the Christ incarnate. I will just read a little bit of it. In brief, it states, it can be stated as the union of full deity and perfect humanity without mixture, change, division, or separation in one person forever. This means that Jesus would always be fully God even though that he was robed in human flesh. He, never, he would never be that Jesus would become God but that he was and he is and he always will be God. Can I have an amen? And when you think of the doctrine of the person of Jesus Christ incarnate, it can become quite complicated in light of scripture. It can become complicated in the view in the light of the scriptures like John 1.14 and also Hebrews 2.9. Let me read those. I'm gonna lay out a foundation and then I'm gonna preach. But John 1.14 says, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as the only begotten, there's the only one of his kind, which, and then he says, uh, only one of the begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And when it says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, it involved a stepping down or a condescending. To say he dwelt among us meant that his location and possibly his position and title had changed. The author of the epistle of Hebrews in Hebrews 2 and 9 says, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. The term made a little lower than the angels and the term that he came and dwelt among us involves a location change, but let me declare unto the church here today, it did not involve a position or a title change. Now let's just get real right here. He changed in location, but he never changed in position. He changed his place of residency, but he never changed his place of position or title. Though he become a servant, yet he remained the son of God. Though he became flesh, yet he remained sovereign. Though he humbled himself as a man, yet he remained in the realm of deity. Jesus Christ was and is and always will be God. Can I have an amen? And there's no other like him. Too difficult. The difficulty in determining what the incarnation involved in relation to Jesus' deity centers on the, the Apostle Paul's statement in the book of Philippians chapter two, verse six and seven. Who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, but took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. Where it says he made himself of no reputation, it is also translated as he made himself nothing. The actual uh, this actually comes from a Greek verb, canoe, in that phrase, and it means emptied in several translations. So therefore, what it is actually saying is that Christ emptied himself out. Also, we see the Apostle Paul saying in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, he says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be made rich. Notice that it says, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. When we think of his deity and his humanity, the God, the God man nature of Christ, what this emptying or becoming poor meant is the problem that we have in the light of his deity. It makes us not understand it. What does it mean that he emptied himself out? What does it mean that he became nothing? What does it mean that he was made in the likeness of a man? What does it mean that he took upon himself the form of a servant? What does it mean that he became poor? Did he lay aside his deity? Did he disrobe himself of his sovereignty? Did he quit existing as God? Did he dismantle his divine attributes and his divine abilities? The emptying of himself did not involve the abandonment of any of his attributes or any elements of the nature of his deity. This is something that God, being immutable, could not do. Otherwise, Jesus would be less than God. Can I have an amen? Everybody with me? Jesus spoke of his unity of nature with God the Father in John 10 and 30 when he said, while he's in his flesh, I and the Father are one. 
He confirmed it again when he said in John 12, verse 44 and 45, when a man believes in me, he does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. And he that seeth me seeth him that sent me. When Jesus made these statements, the Bible says in John 10 and 33 that the Jews picked up stones and they called him out and said, you're a blasphemer, saying that you, a mere man, claim to be God. So they were going to stone him because Jesus claimed he was God. Jesus had already made his claim when he told the Jews earlier in John 8 and 58, he says, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was, he didn't say I was. He says, I am. What did that mean? Jesus identified himself by the name which God identified himself to Moses and to Israel in Exodus 3.14 in the burning bush. When the burning bush caught on fire in the middle of the desert and it burned but it would not go out. And Moses seen the sight. He had seen that sight a thousand times. All of a sudden he says there's something a little bit different about that bush. And that bush it's on fire but it won't be put out. It just keeps burning and it just keeps burning and it it just keeps burning and burning. I'm going to turn aside and see this sight. So he walks up to it. And when he does, all of a sudden, he felt the presence of God. And God begins to speak to him out of the bush. And he takes off his shoes because he's on holy ground. And it was there that God says, I am the I am. And now Jesus comes up in the New Testament. He says, boys, you can call me a blasphemer. You can call me whatever you want to call me. But I want you to no, I am the I am. You better take off your shoes and recognize who it is that's talking to you. I am the son of the living God. I am God. I am the I am. Oh, give him praise here this morning. Oh, hallelujah. Oh, I wish I could preach on that bush just a little bit, which recognizes it is a symbol of the church. He's divine, and we're the branches. Oh, well, I'm about to dance. There's a lot of things being called God nowadays, but there's only one proven God. Can I have an amen? Again, we see the Jews recognize. Come on, yeah, that's all right. Give him praise. He's worthy. Stand to give him a standing ovation. That's acceptable. Yes, You and you only are Lord God Almighty. Hallelujah. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Hallelujah. But again, when Jesus done that and said that, we see the Jews recognize the significance of Jesus' claim. And they respond by picking up stones again. They're going to stone him again. And I want to tell you, if Jesus claims to be in God or not true, that he was it, then he was deluded or he was a deceiver. And his life, ministry, and teaching do not indicate him to be either one of those. His whole ministry was centered upon him revealing the Father, making the Father known, and not to build a reputation for himself. The two New Testament authors even affirm his deity. In Philippians 2, 6, Paul said, Jesus was the very nature of God. Paul again described Christ as the image of the invisible God in Colossians 1, 15. The writer of Hebrews wrote that in these last days, he, God, has spoken to us by his son in Hebrews 1, 12, 1 2. And he went on to say that he, the son of God, was in the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. In Hebrews chapter one, verse three, Paul called God Jesus, or Paul called Jesus God in Romans five and two. And he went on to call him our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ in Titus 2.13. Not only do we see the epistles declaring him as God, but we also see Jesus exercising divine attributes. In his earthly life and ministry, Jesus used numerous attributes only possessed by God. When Philip brought Nathanael to Jesus, the Lord said, Nathanael was a true Israelite in whom there's no false, John 1, 47. But there's something strange about this. This was more than just human insight. It was divine omniscience. Omniscience means that all-knowing. Jesus was all-knowing even in the flesh. 
Can I have an amen? On several occasions, Jesus demonstrated more than just human knowledge. Matter of fact, in John 4, verse 17 and 18, Jesus told the Samaritan woman at the well of Sychar, he said, you are right when you say you have no husband. He said, the fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now live with is not your husband. I tell you what, he had divine insight because he was omniscient, he was all-knowing. And can I tell you, there's been times he's read my mail and there's times he's gonna read your mail. You know why? Because there's nothing hidden that shall not be revealed. There's nothing covered up that shall not be made. He knows it all anyway. We try to hide and tuck things under and we try to manipulate God as if, we're, as if we can hide something from You're not hiding anything from him. He knows the very intent of your heart and the imaginations of your thoughts. Can I have an amen? He's God. Also, we see when the scribes and the Pharisees watched Jesus to see if he would heal on a Sabbath day so that they could find, a, find and make an accusation against him. It says in Luke 6, 8, and 9, but he knew their thoughts. Again, there's the omniscience of God. He knew their thoughts. And he said to the man which had the withered hand, rise up and stand forth in the mist. And then said Jesus unto them, to the scribes of Pharisees, knowing their thoughts, I will ask you one thing. Now, here they are. They haven't even voiced their opinion yet. He tells this guy to stand up. He says, now, you Pharisees, you scribes, I want to ask you a question. He says, is it lawful on the Sabbath day to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? And I bet they're sitting there thinking, man, how did he know our thoughts? And then all of a sudden, when Nathaniel asked in John 1, verse 48, how do you know me? Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip ever even called you. Here is a different, a different attribute. In the beginning, we're seeing Jesus operating in omniscience, all-knowing, but here we see that he's also what we call omnipresent. He said, here's what he said. He said, here's what Jesus said to him. He says, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip ever called you. He was there, not in flesh, but he's seen him in spirit. And can I tell you, God, Jesus Christ, was also using the attribute of being omnipresent. Jesus also demonstrates divine omnipotence in his control over a storm. Matthew 8, verse 23, 27, multiple places do we see this. It's when the disciples are out in a boat and the storm comes and they're afraid. They wake up the master, say, care not, we perish. He gets up and rebukes them of their little faith. He rebukes the wind. He speaks peace to the waves. And all of a sudden, the people say, what manner of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey his voice? I want to tell you, not only that, he even looked at them one time and he said, don't you understand? As he cast demons out and they feared and trembled, he said, don't you understand? He said, if I, by the finger of God, cast out demons, then you know that the kingdom of God has come to you. And then we hear Jesus out of his own statement at the Great Commission in Matthew 28 and 18, all power is given to me in heaven and earth. Not only did Jesus not abandon any of his divine attributes, but he also exercised divine prerogatives. What is a prerogative? A prerogative is a right to certain special powers or privileges. It, Jesus had the right to what we call divine prerogatives, which means things that only God could do. By Jesus exercising divine prerogatives, he demonstrated that he did not lose any of his deity at his incarnation when he turned flesh. He exercised the divine prerogative of the forgiveness of sin. When Jesus healed the paralyzed man, Mark chapter two in Capernaum, Jesus also said, when uh, uh, Jesus said to them, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to him, son, your sins are forgiven thee. The teachers of the law began to accuse Jesus of blaspheme and said, no one can forgive sins but God. But listen to Jesus' response to them in Mark chapter two, starting with verse eight. And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were so reasoned within themselves, he said to them, why reason ye things in your heart? Whether is it easy for me to say to the sick and palsy, thy sins be forgiven thee, or is it easy for me to say, arise, take up your bed and walk? 
but that you may know that the Son has power upon the earth to forgive sins. He saith to the sick in the palsy, I say unto thee, rise, take up your bed, go thy way into the house. And immediately he arose, took up his bed, went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed. And they glorified God, saying, we have never sought in this fashion before. Can I tell you that he is divine here today? because of the time we cannot preach all the divine prerogatives that Jesus exercised. He casted out demons. He healed the sick. He opened blinded eyes. He healed leprosy. He made them lame to walk. Come on, somebody. He raised people from the dead. Jesus received worship. That's saying that there, he was God. Jesus exercised authority over the dark domain. Jesus exercised the ability to save. Jesus said that the Father has given all judgment unto the Son. These are just some things that Jesus did that men could not do. Jesus was God while robed in human flesh. And though Jesus had the divine attribute of omniscience, he was all-knowing, yet in his humanity, in his flesh, as the son of man, it says that he grew in wisdom and he learned how to be obedient by the things which he suffered. It says that he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. That's strange. We don't understand that. And even though he was all-powerful, yet Jesus could feel the range of normal human emotions. He wept at the tomb of Lazarus. He was sorrowful in spirit and sad as he sat over the Jerusalem on a mountain and wept and prayed over it. He felt righteous indignation and anger in Mark chapter three, verse five, when he drove the money changers out of the temple. He was tempted, yet without sin. He was hungry, and he even became thirsty in Matthew chapter four. Though he was God, yet he was also a carpenter. He pain, he experienced rejection, he knew shame, he struggled in his will in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus truly lived as a man among men, and yet he was still God, robed in deity. Can I have an amen? Jesus possessed full deity and perfect, complete humanity at the very same time. Jesus was the only one God-man creature on the earth. Matter of fact, Jesus had what is known as a hypostatic union, a union of natures to form one person. He did not have a split personality with his divine and human natures in conflict with each other like a jackal and Hyde. How many has ever seen the movie Jackal and Hyde? Well, you never knew which one he was going to be. One minute he'd be mean, and the next minute he'd be good. One minute he'd be a monster, and the next minute he'd be a compassionate human being. And sometimes we kind of picture Jesus that way. That's not the case. Jesus never spoke of either his deity or his humanity as separate from himself. He always spoke and acted as one person. And yet we cannot hold to the view of what is known as the Eutychus doctrine that was prominent in 378, 378 and 454 AD, a 76-year span. He had the view that Christ's deity and humanity was blended into one nature like the ingredients of a cake. You put it in a blender. You put part God here and part human here, put a blender in, stir it up, and that's what you get. The doctrine was a heresy that taught Jesus only had one nature. It taught that he had one blended nature, not a divine nature and a human nature. It actually taught that Jesus was a mixture between the two of deity and humanity. In other words, he might have come out 50% and 50%, 50% human, 50% God, or it could have been 60% human, 40% God, could have been the other way around. You might ask the question, why does this have to do with anything? Why am I preaching this today? It's important for us to understand that Jesus has two natures. First of all, he could not be fully God if he was only part God. Amen. And if, he could not, and if he could not identify and understand man if he was only part man. Therefore, he could not fulfill the role as the great high priest that he is today. We quote it all the time in Hebrews chapter four. Uh, he's ascended to the right hand of the Father to sit at his right side to make intercessory for us, feeling our infirmities. He could not feel those infirmities as if he was less than a man. And the only way that Jesus could pay the full sin debt was to be a perfect sacrifice that was without sin and blemish. He was this as the son of God. 
Yet he also cannot redeem men totally if he had not condemned sin in the flesh and destroy its yoke and power over man. Therefore, Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In other words, Jesus as God atoned for our sin being the perfect sacrifice, but as a man, he lived above reproach and sin to condemn sin and give a way for us to escape for fallen man. If Jesus only atoned for sin as God and never took on human flesh, then we would have never been able to overcome because you and I have no divine nature in which we can pull from. You and I are only saved not by what we can perform for him, but what he has performed for us. Can I have an amen? You're saved here today completely by grace. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Your work stinks in the nostril of God. Can I have an amen? I'm gonna preach here in a minute. Just hang on, I'm building a sermon. If Jesus would have never robed himself in human flesh, he would have never been able to identify himself with the infirmities of man. But now because he was 100% human as well as 100% divine, he can feel our very infirmities because he was tempted in all points like we are yet without sin. He feels our hurts, our pains, our sufferings, our disappointments, our frustrations, our temptations. Come on. Therefore, he's able to come to our rescue and our aid in the time of need because he knows what you're going through. Lewis Sperry Chaffee had this to say about the incarnation of Christ. He said he was weary, yet he called the weary to himself for rest. He was young, hungry, yet he was the bread of life. He was thirsty, yet he was the water of life, the springs of living water, oh my he was in agony, yet he healed all manner of sicknesses and diseases among the people. He grew and waxed strong in spirit, yet he was from all eternity. He was tempted, yet he as God could not be tempted. He was self-limited in knowledge, yet he was the wisdom of God and omniscient. He prayed, which is a human, uh, which is a always human, yet he himself answered prayer. He was weak, yet all power was given to him in heaven and in earth. Do you see where we're going here? He slept on a pillow in a boat, yet he arose to rebuke the storm, and he is God that never slumbers, nor does he ever sleep. He was baptized, which is only a human act, yet at that time God declared him as to be his son in which he's well pleased. He walked two long days' journey to Bethany, yet he already knew the moment that Lazarus died. He wept at the tomb, yet he called the dead to rise again. He confessed that he would be put to death, yet he was the son of the living God, the resurrection and the life. He died, but yet he rose. He died, but the grave couldn't hold him. He died, but he come out on the third day. And can I tell you, he's still alive forevermore. He is the son of the living God in whom we serve. Oh, Lord. Why am I preaching this kind of sermon today? God wants us to preserve the gospel of Jesus Christ. The body of Christ is so focused on so many other things, destiny and purpose and anointing and the five-fold ministry and vision and all that kind of stuff, which is not bad, but yet we must understand that Jesus Christ is the hub that holds all Christianity together. The body of Christ is making a major mistake today and that is that they're making the laws and the principles of the Bible doctrine. Now hold on. The Bible, folks, can be summed up as the doctrine of Jesus Christ. The laws and the principles in the word of God is just that. They are laws and they are principles. There's the law of giving and receiving, the law of sowing and reaping, the law of nature, the law of gravity, the law and the principles of tithing, the law of living and dying, the principles of calling and purpose and destiny and ministry, the principles of fivefold ministry, on and on and on. All these things hinge on and exist by the authority of Jesus Christ. All things consist and exist by him. That's what Colossians tells us, and they're for him. 
No matter what law or principle there is, you take Christ out of the equation and then the law or that principle cease to exist because it is the authority of Christ that makes that law or principle work. That's why that a lot of times you got to know when God's speaking to you because there's a difference in just throwing a random word out there and having a rhema word that God's speaking at that particular time. Can I have an amen? No matter what law or principle there is, you take Christ out, the equation, that principle ceased to have the power to fulfill what it proclaims. When the church refrains from preaching Jesus Christ, then they become a servant to laws and principles. And then the favor and the anointing and the prosperity that they're looking for is not found because they do not know the foundation to which by these things exist. How many know that Jesus Christ is the foundation? How many understands that he's the chief cornerstone? There's the only him. Everything hinges upon him. And it seems that believers come into the church feeling good about themselves when they behaved, and they come into the church feeling condemned when they fail. Have you ever noticed that? Everybody says, well, that's, that's right. That's the right. No, it's not. Neither of these things are proper reasons for feeling one way or another. It's quiet. We're not saved by our works or our performance. Neither are we going to be kept saved by our works or our performance. I'm not a Christian because I live right. I live right because I'm a Christian. There's a difference. I do not become something as a result of what I do. I do as a result of what I've already become. Can I have an amen? My good morals nor my failure should cause me to respond in a positive or a negative way and determine how I feel about my relationship with Jesus Christ. My good morals should be the result of my inner faith and my relationship that I have with Christ and my failure should not condemn me but it should bring me immediately to repentance to where I find mercy and grace in the forgiveness of sin. Can I have an amen? Some of you are sitting back completely defeated over a sin you'd done 10 months ago and you're trying to somehow get yourself to feel good about yourself so you can approach God again. I want to tell you, if you'll just repent, God is faithful and just to forgive your sins and let you go on. He's not a God with a club. God told me this morning, really hard for me to preach this message. God told me that if I'd preach Jesus that he would prosper and bless and preserve the church. I asked God, I was praying, I said, God, pour out your anointing this coming Sunday. And he said, no, you pour it out. I said, do what, sir? I said, what do you mean? He said, Jesus is the anointing, and when you preach Jesus, the anointing will be there. Hallelujah. He's the anointed one. He's the anointed one. What's the answer for the church in the 21st century? It's Jesus. What's the answer to all of the division and the strife and the darkness of this old world? It's Jesus. What, what, what's the answer for our nation that has lost, lost its bearings and lost, lost its control? It's Jesus. Can I have an amen? Jesus is where men can be saved. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says uh, that if we'll confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in our heart that God's raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. Well, for the heart man believeth, with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made into salvation. I tell you, Jesus is where men can be healed. Acts 10 and 38, how that God anointed Jesus Christ of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power who ran around doing good and healing all that was oppressed of the devil for God was with him. It is in Jesus Christ that we can find forgiveness. First John 1 and 9, if we'll confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, uh, John 2 verse 1, these things I write unto you, my little children, that you sin not, but if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who's the perpetuation for our sins and not only our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. You know what else? Jesus, it's in him that 
that we can find deliverance. The Spirit of the Lord God, he said, is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captive and the recovering of the sight to the blind and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. I want to tell you he's still the I am that I am. He's still God. He's still the rock of ages. He's still the son of the living God. He's the God who threw the stars in the sky and spoke the earth into existence that formed man out of the dust of the earth and breathed in him the breath of life. He's still the God throughout the Bible who healed and touched and blessed and strengthened and delivered. He's God in this place and if we'll respond to Jesus Christ, he'll show himself strong on your behalf. Would you stand with me this morning? He that has the Son has life. He that has not the Son has not life. Hallelujah. He frees. Know the truth and he'll set you free. Can I have an amen? I like Paul. Whether I live, I live unto the Lord. Whether I die, I die unto the Lord. Whether I live, therefore, whether I die, I'm the Lord's. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And then he said, but if I'm gonna live, follow me even as I follow Christ. Amen. All of you young people out there, you're being bombarded with all these other uh, things that's saying that this is God and that's God and, and all of this woke stuff and going on. I wanna tell you, there's only one doctrine that is true. There's only one person that is true and it's Jesus Christ. I'd like for my staff to come and line up out here for a minute. All my elders, my council members. The devil hates preaching like this. He hates substance. But I have revealed to you the most soundest truth that there is in all the word of God. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is God. He's omniscient, he's all powerful, he's omnipresent. There's nothing that he cannot do. Nothing is impossible to them that will believe. I was praying over all of the different cancer, people just in cancer alone. And I've been overwhelmed. As a shepherd, I've shed many tears this week thinking, my goodness, Lord, what in the world is going on? And every time I turn around, I get another call, can you add this person to the sick list? I said, yeah, what's wrong? Cancer, cancer. I'm so sick of cancer. Sick of it. And I said, Lord, we've been praying, we've been praying. Then all of a sudden, it's just like all week. By faith, I want you to do a favor for me, Kent. And for yourself, preach Jesus. Just preach Jesus. Jesus. Oh, I wish I could sing. I'd sing that song that there's no sweeter name than the name of Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. What a lovely name. Oh, he... He's the lily of the valley. He's the bright and morning star we used to sing when I was a little boy. He's the fairest of 10,000 to my soul. Oh, hallelujah. He's Jesus. And he sits at the right hand of the Father to make intercession for every one of you here today. And can I one more time tell you, he is God. And whatever you need of him today, I want you to come up here. And that these elders and these deacons and these staff, the faculty and the staff is gonna lay hands on you and pray for you. And we're gonna believe that this Jesus that we preach will manifest and show you God as he promised he would. He's promised you that. That's a promise that you can rely. And it's about feeling. It's about believing Jesus. It's faith. Someone gave me a bad report of a certain individual this week. 
I said, I don't care what the report says. I know the master. I know, I know the, the giver of life, the healer. And I just went to prayer over it. That's all I know to do. I don't have the divine attribute, but he does. I don't know where you're at or what you're going through, but I can tell you, my God is a God of miracles. I said he's a God of miracles. And if he done them while on earth, how much more does he want to do them after the atonement? Can I have an amen? When he says it is finished, it did not mean that he was finished. It just meant that salvation was finished. But he liveth to ever make intercessory. His ministry goes on. He's alive and well. He never slumbers nor sleeps. And he sees right where you're at. Now will you respond to him in faith by coming and let these men and women pray for you in Jesus' name. Will you come? Whatever need you have. No matter what need, little or big,
presence of the Lord in the building this morning. He's always faithful, isn't he? I don't know what it is, but I feel like we're just going to break loose any moment, whether it be today or tomorrow, when the Lord's just going to send a revival. Like we never, there's a, there's a rumbling going on even out in there in a little area. Don't suppress it, man. Let the Lord have his way. That's what this thing's about. We love you. How many believe in Jesus Christ being the supreme authority of all authority? How many believe that Jesus Christ is Lord? I can't hear you. How many believe that Jesus Christ is Lord? Hallelujah. May the Lord bless you. We're going to pray with these as long as we need to. Come out tonight. We're going to have a great service. Remember Thursday night, Friday night, 7 o'clock. God bless you.